0: Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be.
1: Good afternoon, this is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. We recently hosted a series of interviews at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, a conference known for innovation and collaboration. The first of our sessions in the series of these live podcasts at the South by Southwest Lounge was called Innovative Data Approaches to Clinical Trial Recruitment. And we are fortunate to have an all-star cast. I, again, led this one starting with Brian Hansen, who's the Director of Data Science and Digital Health Neuroscience for the Janssen Division of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, We had the pleasure of having Brian last year at South by Southwest as well, and you talk about a guy that is well-steeped in all things data and platforms and clinical. We had Mema Carmo, who is the CEO and founder of the Tiger Lily Foundation. Uh, She's a 15-year survivor of breast cancer, and she is the leader of this amazing patient advocacy firm that works closely with many life sciences companies to help them on their journey. Last but not least, we were also joined by Joan Severson who is the chief innovation officer of a company called Clinical Inc. Joan was a lovely compliment to the session. She talks a lot about um, devices, particularly wearables, Apple watch and the data that we're able to sort of tap into and use as part of the clinical trial process. Some of the benefits, some of the challenges, Overall, I learned a lot, I think you will too, and I think you'll find this an incredibly valuable session. Welcome everyone. We're excited to have these amazing guests talking about a really important topic. I think during the pandemic, you know, we all learned a lot more about clinical trials for those of us that didn't know about them, but today we're gonna to talk a little bit more about sort of new data sources, new platforms, new approaches, you know, what's sort of trending, and we've got three amazing people here who are gonna help us sort of walk through this process. We're gonna try to make this as conversational as we can, and uh, if we trip and fall over ourselves, that's most likely me, then just laugh with us and we'll keep rolling on. But I'm really excited to have three super smart people, two of which I have known for a while, one of which I just met but I love already. So we start with Brian Hansen, who's the Director of Data Science and Digital Health neuroscience at a company called Janssen, which is part of this other little um, pharma company called J&J. You may have heard about them at the event today. So welcome, Brian. We have Joan Severson, who's the chief innovation officer at uh, a company called uh, Clinical Inc. And then last but not least, we have May McCarmo, who is the CEO and president of a patient advocacy group called Tiger Lily Foundation. And so you're going to get a fairly um, diverse set of input on a very (coughs) important topic. So, I wanna start with a couple of trends that are happening, so decentralized trials. We're gonna talk about standardizing data using AI and ML tools, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Focusing on direct data capture, DDC versus electronic data capture, EDC. This is one I think Joan is gonna lean into and probably Brian as well. And then smart reconciliation among data. We will have an overlay of, you know, the FDA, not recently, I think over a year ago, mandated that uh, drug companies really start to put an emphasis on diversity in clinical trials and there's a lot that comes with that that you probably don't know about. Um, there's health equity, there's patient advocacy, so Maima is going to be our Jiminy Cricket for this and make sure that she keeps us honest as well as someone that knows quite a bit about clinical. So, with that, I'm going to start with you, Maima. We'll work around. Let's give a little 30 seconds of who you are beyond your title. And then let's tell us. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Can I do
2: like a minute or two? <laughs>
1: well, you know, I told you 30 because I, 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 I didn't do a minute. Cheat.
2: So I'm Maima Carmel. I am, as of last week, a 17-year breast cancer survivor. Thank you so much. Woo, woo. God is good. Um, I learned I had breast cancer at 31 years old. And I'm still 31. But um, they told me I had five years to live with triple negative breast cancer. And I said, that's not what God wants for me. I began Tiger Lily in treatment. My daughter, who's right here, was three years old. And I thought, how can I help women have more equitable outcomes, more resources, and more love, support, and heart? And being an integral part of the clinical trial, advocacy, policy, and just, you know, having that force multiplication, like that, that presence in, the, in healthcare. So I began Tiger Lily then, um, while in chemotherapy, while in treatment, going through that process. And today I'm thankfully again healthy, happy, and we build an army of angels across the country and then going across the world. You know, when I began Tiger Lily, there was not really a voice for patient advocates. It was like the doctors are here and then you're the patient, you just do whatever they say and that's it. But I thought, I found a tumor at 31 years old. I was told to wait for six months for a mammogram. I got it, it came back clean And then it kept growing. So I said, well, you guys can't see it, but I can feel it. So duh, the technology's wrong. So I pushed for a biopsy for over six more months. And when I finally got it, I had triple negative breast cancer. is the most aggressive cancer in black women with no targeted treatment up until three years ago. So imagine you are not told you can get breast cancer at a young age. You find a lump, you're self-advocating for yourself. You see a doctor, they tell you to wait, get a mammogram, it comes back clean, and you have to push for these life-saving interventions that you have to pay for out of pocket, and they're telling you the whole time that you're wrong. The average person would say, well, I saw a doctor, she said, I'm fine. I got a mammogram, it came out fine, so why am I bothering? But I knew my body enough to say that I want to have a definite answer, and I thank God I got one, or I'd be a ghost today. So I always say for me, tiger lily was my paid forward. Because there are women who were like me, who were younger, who were dying because they were told to wait and come back in six months to a year, who weren't advocating for themselves or were dismissed, not offered trials. And so Taika Lily really is a beautiful flower that plants seeds of hope within patients, within advocacy groups, within pharma. And we challenge people on how to think differently about medicine, about patients and how important we are in the process. So... Was that good enough?
1: That was perfect. And okay. thank you. And bravo for doing that. I try that.
2: to keep my, my time.
1: So, but what you didn't share is what's the one thing that people don't know about you that you're willing to share with them?
2: The one thing I would share is that um, when I was little, I asked my mom, how can I love for a living? I'm just a very big hearted love bug person. And she goes, well, what, what job will pay you to love for a living? I said, I just don't know. And so... Um, Apparently but you I, had to
1: invent one, right? So that well, you could I did.
2: Have I mean, I got breast cancer. I can love my patients for a living, my sponsors for a living, my partners for a living, and mm-hmm. my daughter, who was three when I was diagnosed, now works for me. So I have her in, part in my business that I love, and I do what I do every day. So I love for a living. I get to create epic shit every day with great people. Sorry, Aaron. That's okay. And so life should be this about is passion.
1: PG-13, so you can't say swear <laughs> Life's <laughs>
2: about purpose, passion, and doing what you love and loving what you do. And so that's what I do every day and I love 24-7 and I get to expand that love in the world and help patients have longer lives. Well, what I more could I ask for?
1: I love that about you, so thank you. So Joan, top that. Uh, no, give us I a little can't. bit of background. <laughs> uh, well,
3: there's absolutely Joan, nothing, nothing I can say to top that. So. Joan's got a
1: great like, uh, secret about herself that I think you'll okay, be impressed Okay, so with.
3: I'm going to start out with that. I flunked out of college twice uh, when I was younger. I um, ended up going back to school when I was 30 because I'd read a book on virtual reality by Howard Reingold. I subsequently met at a conference. Um, and I'd written him a note and said that I went into computer science because of his book. I wanted to work in virtual reality. So my whole shtick is doing things the way you're not supposed to. And everything that I've done in technology, like from being able to start to, we developed the first self-administered cognitive testing that was brain baseline. And we used to have people stand up at conferences and say, why are you doing this? You're taking my job away. This isn't how it's done. And um, so what we developed over, so I actually had founded two companies prior to uh, becoming part of Clinical Inc. Um, Both of them were technology companies. But the idea of giving people the ability to do their own cognitive testing on their mobile device at home and baseline themselves was something that was very foreign to most neuropsychologists. And then we've just kind of taken off from there, like, what are the things that you can do to self-empower and understand your health? using your own personal uh, mobile devices that are clinically relevant. So that's kind of been my thing is to do things the way people are told not to do it. And it worked out pretty
1: well. You're my kind of person, Joe yeah. <laughs> I, I do things the way you're not supposed to do them too, like wearing t-shirts. I had one of my colleagues ask me about it. And I said, you know what? I'll be honest, I sweat profusely, especially at events, and so short (laughs) sleeve shirts are my friends. So you either get to see me casual in my good at naps t-shirt, or you get to see me sweating the whole time. So I think this is a better option. Brian, how about you?
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Aaron, to just begin. Thanks to Real Chemistry. I'm so excited to be here again at South by. Um, so I'm uh, Director of Data Science, Digital Health at Janssen, and that is the pharmaceutical arm of Johnson & Johnson. So we are really focused on uh, identifying new compounds within the neuroscience space. Uh, I'm particularly interested and focused on generation. So really kind of fundamentally thinking about how we treat and, and monitor and really hopefully find you know new and novel therapies for patients with Alzheimer's disease thinking about patients with Parkinson's so really focused on you know bringing technology but then also bringing the right therapies and really again with this idea of precision medicine so going after the right patient at the right time with the right dose and and, and approach so it's a it's an exciting mission to be on and it's it's a really exciting to be here too so um, something exciting so uh, Take a take a step back, I'm in college, uh, I'm into neuroscience, I'm into computer science, and the opening textbook of uh, Kendall, Jeshul, Schwartz, Principles of Neuroscience, the first page, is the first recording of the word brain in hieroglyphics. And as a very kind of eager, you know, uh, young undergrad and, ne- and future neuroscientist, I went and I got that tattooed on my back, knowing that that is what I was gonna do for the rest of my life, so. We'll, we'll talk about that later.
1: <laughs> so I have to say, when you first said, I have a tattoo on my back, I'm thinking to myself, A, that doesn't <laughs> seem like that's in your character, and B, I can't wait to find out what it is. That's actually a kind of a cool tattoo. Yeah. I Can, mean, we so, huh? Can we see it?
0: Kudos. Can we see it? Eventually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As, As a, a fellow is, sweater, I don't know. If this is PG-13. <laughs> yeah. We can't go to nudity yeah. even, you know. Yeah. So why don't we start by level setting and say, okay, What is a clinical trial? And Joan, I'm gonna point to you, and then let's talk about the lifeblood of clinical trials is this thing called data, right? Real world evidence, real world data, there's lots of it. Your company does a lot to sort of help move that forward. Tell someone in in layman's terms, what is a clinical trial?
3: So there's four different types of clinical trials. There's a phase zero or phase one, where they're either at an animal model level or where you have very few people and they're looking at the safety of a compound. And then there's, and it looks like it's safe, looks like it could do what we're hoping it'll do. It then goes to phase two, where you have maybe a few hundred people that are participating in the study and looking for more evidence that this compound works. And if it gets to the next level, we're at a phase three clinical trial where it becomes potentially a more global trial where we're recruiting maybe 3,000 subjects mm-hmm. around yeah. the planet to participate in the study. And then there's a phase four clinical trial that if that compound goes to market, where it, when it's in market, it's actually still in a clinical trial where they're looking for additional labeling or maybe looking for side effects that weren't initially captured in the other phases of the clinical trial. Clinical trials are a very risky business. About, I think it's 14% of all molecules that start at that phase zero, phase one, ever make it to market. So it's a very high risk industry in terms of, you know, putting a lot of money and time and asking for patients and their time and, um, you know, their commitment to participate in these clinical trials and then have only 14% of them uh, result in being able to have... um, impact on overall healthcare and, and therapies. So that's kind of the many levels of clinical trials. I have
1: to ask, you have those four stages tattooed on the inside of your arm? Like I Brian do, has
3: I do, I do, by the way, we'll show this to you later. We're gonna have a tattoo show, so yeah. yeah.
1: What I will say, and kudos, we did not prep for that. So you did that like a pro, so thank you, Joan. I, I, I told you already, I love your style. I do wanna start with the data piece, right? So Brian, I'm gonna start with you. I mentioned the fact that data is sort of the lifeblood of clinical trials, yep. and I want to start to look at like what is the role that data plays. So, Brian, maybe you yeah. could simplify that and tell us like, what? J- Joan just gave us the background. Exactly, what what yeah. role does data play in that?
0: It's 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 everything. It's it's can we identify individuals that we want to enroll for screening? We need to collect information. Early on in the pre-screening phase, we need to identify the right individuals for the trial, so that we know that we're going to have, say, strong efficacy. You know, in the later phases of the trials, as Joan mentioned, uh, as we're in the trial, we want to be able to collect, you know, you know, objective, continuous measurements about the patient's, you know, behavior, their journey, the the safety, the you know the 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 tolerability, the toxicity, all of the aspects of drug development, but then you also layer on the the behavior. So looking at things like cognition, thinking about sleep data, thinking about mood and behavior, all of these take into consideration this this whole picture. And then I would be remiss if I didn't mention like the data from the caregiver, the data from the patient's, you know, family network and support network. That is a huge Uh, you know, aspect of can we get patient reported outcomes, can we get, you know, uh, family member outcomes, you know, all of these other aspects of, of, of the journey, it's not just about the medicine, it's about the whole patient, it's about moving all of that information from those kind of brick and mortar clinical sites that are far away, but bringing it to the home, thinking about wearable data, thinking about other technology. So that's really the focus.
1: Awesome. And Joan, I know I said you were going to answer. I actually want you to answer the second one because we're going to get into your role and what the data plays a little bit later. So I don't want to pre steal your thunder. I do want to talk about this thing called the pandemic. Does anyone remember that? <laughs> Thank God we're here in person, right? And that I know there are still lingering COVID problems, but um, we're through it. And there were some silver linings, right? We got to wear sweatpants for three years while we we're sitting on Zoom calls, we learned how to do telehealth. Um, But one of the things that I think people do forget about is we did learn some valuable lessons during the pandemic and they are applicable to clinical trials. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about the positive and what are the things that we saw that are now getting carried through. So maybe Joan, I will start and then we'll hand over to Maimon to talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. What we saw was um, an aggressive interest in using technology to keep clinical trials going. So one of the things that the pandemic did mm-hmm. was it stopped clinical trials uh, for a, a very brief period of time where patients could not go into sites. And so they needed to rapidly find ways in which you could continue to have patients participate in a clinical trial. Part of the challenge with clinical trials is that from the time you file a patent on a molecule, you have 20 years to recoup the money that you're going to spend on developing that molecule into an actual drug therapy. So every day you lose is an opportunity to be able to continue to recoup the money that you spent. So technology became a very important piece of how can we continue to have clinical trials go forward safely. And then from that, they learned a lot about what could we do after the pandemic from those lessons that we learned um, in you know, the urgency of the pandemic. So there was a lot of adoption, you see telemedicine, you see um, digital innovation groups in the pharmaceutical companies, understanding what's real and what they can recommend to their clinical teams. And so I think that the pandemic, there's a lot of technologies that have evolved very rapidly because of the pandemic.
1: Great answer. I mean, one of the things, and I'll set the table for you, I think there were some good and bad things that happened from a diversity perspective, but we had this thing um, called a COVID vaccine that we had to develop and it had to be done in record time. So you had to sort of look to different methods to do it. So technology is one of them, but moving clinical centers, you know, closer, and I won't steal your thunder, tell us a little bit about, you know, what is your perspective on what we learned during the pandemic that actually is positive and we've carried forward?
2: Yeah, Erin. I think I learned the most, thing, most important thing was that everything's possible. As a patient advocate, I met with Pharma before COVID and said, how do we put trials in supermarkets? How do we put them in people's homes? How do we put them, patient advocates, in the community? And they said, we don't do things that way. It's not possible. And I say, everything's possible. Told You're like, me, have you met
1: May McCarmo yet? Because <laughs> no, everything's that means, possible You know today. all this is?
2: Like, <laughs> it's possible. And so there are things I proposed before COVID. I have a deck. And then when it happened, they were like, can we get that deck? I'm like, well, no, I gave it to you five years, but <laughs> everything's possible. Also, reach people where they are, right? We train women of color in communities that where they live, work, play, and pray to understand health equity, clinical trials, to understand the importance of building trust. So we went to churches, we went to schools, we went, to, we went in the communities. During the pandemic, we had movie screenings that were safe. We had... Um, like fashion shows that were remotely where it was safe enough. Is, but people came to these events to have, see a fashion show, see a movie screening, to learn about the importance of COVID safety and effectiveness. But I say we were able to find three different, different vaccines, am I right or wrong?
1: Yes, actually, and yeah, more than that. But yes, yeah. but, it, major, but it yeah.
2: happened in less than a year and a half. If we can do that within that pandemic framework, how can we keep that urgency going forward? So that's so important to me. Also, I say, where do you you have to reach people where they are. Where a patient's gonna be at, right? For example, I know I look fly today, okay? I got my my hair, my hair did, I bought this new outfit, I got my little good American leggings on and my Nike. But somebody put it in my in my Instagram, the ad in my Instagram, in my Facebook, in my text messages, there's ways to reach black people and brown people where they are. Use that same commercialization to reach us with medicines. Nobody I've met who's died of cancer or whatever it is said. I'm so happy I didn't have the right medicine for my body. No one says that. I mean, people <laughs> want many the right medicine. Do, yes. Well, they don't because, but they don't know that it's available for one and they're not offered. So we trained last year 250 black women in communities that were underserved in 20 cities. It was me and like five people that called, went, went to people's communities, had listening sessions, and we trained black women to be messengers of trust to take the messages forward and in the, in, in deploy them. We reached over 5 million women just through social media, through listening sessions, through going where they are, they're making like lifestyle events, right? Going to the churches, going to the hair salons. We all get our hair done, right? <laughs> so just make it where people are gonna be and go there, make it easy for them. And also I say you want to make the dinner with the patient. So when you're making this solution, don't ask the patient at the end when you've already talked to your R&D people, it's all done and baked. You know, ask the patients, what do you want? Does not make sense for you? And to be honest, this shouldn't be so clinical, right? Everyone, everyone here wears contact lenses. We take aspirin. We take medications for our headaches, backaches. We've gone through surgeries. Those reasons that you're here are part of a clinical trial that happened to have you give you those medicines. So, how do we make the word trials more amenable, approachable, to those, approachable yeah. and yeah. easy? You know. So I think for me is saying to a patient like, I look like this. I'm like you. I got you, boo. Let's let's talk about this, make it a fun, friendly, engaging Mm -hmm. event or activity. Make it easy for patients.
1: I love that. I actually hadn't really thought about that. And we've talked a lot about these things. So thank you for being so prescriptive. Is that helpful? You're always helpful. Thanks. And loving. (laughs) Uh, The next thing I do want to talk about is clinical data capture techniques. So we have more of them than we've ever had before. We won't bore you with all the details. I don't have the tattoo of that on my arm. Um, Why don't we start, and and Joan, if you want to start first and Brian chime in, but what are you excited about? Maybe one thing that in these new techniques that you're most excited about right now.
3: Consumer wearables. I am like so into consumer wearables. In fact, we in Parkinson's disease research are now able to detect early stage Parkinson's disease with 92% accuracy using an Apple watch and a phone, where the uh, universal Parkinson's disease rating scale the physician administers is 85% accurate. So I think that all of these devices, I'm particularly fond of Apple, but these devices are able to collect data that was never available even to your physician in terms of the frequency and the quality of the data that we're able to capture. So I think that sensors and wearables that we're wearing every day now will become a part of how we look at clinical care, not just clinical trials. Yeah. So no, be- I-
1: Before you yeah. answer that, because I want to push on this and I'm actually doing it in a positive way, but. I think we were told like five, six, seven years ago, and we all had Fitbits, like this is going to be the solution. What changed that made these so much more reliable and accurate? Because I know for a while there was a promise and then the promise failed. And it sounds like now we're back to it's actually good. And I don't think
3: it failed. I think that there were people that didn't understand how to do the science behind calibration and understanding data quality. So Fitbit was originally designed for just being able to do tracking for your own um, activity monitoring, but Apple actually went into and started to looking at their sensors and wearables and their watches as more of a medical grade device. So they've been doing validation studies with their devices. They also have invested a lot in the actual quality of those sensors. So you can buy, you know, um, less accurate accelerometers or have less uh, responsive touch screens on maybe lower end devices, but I think that Google mm-hmm. and Apple are really aggressively looking at making these um, more reliable and useful for healthcare. And so I think that initially people saw the promise, mm-hmm. um, they just hadn't gone through all the process yet.
1: Well, thank you. That was the answer I was looking for and I appreciate yeah. Here, your could I ask Could I share something? Could I Absolutely. share
2: something? Yeah. So like years ago, we didn't all have iPhones. They were unaffordable. We had different kinds of phones, right? But not everybody has some kind of, for the most part, has a phone that they can use for, you know, just for tracking whatever. And we don't all have this, but I got an Aura ring, and I got, you know, an Apple Watch to track my breathing, my heart rate, you know, just things I should be able to be aware of to monitor my health. Most Black people live under what they call a high allostatic load, meaning the stress of being Black can really impact, it does impact our health as men and women. So how do we make these wearables more affordable For everybody to have to monitor what they're eating their sleep their heart rate when they're resting versus when they're stressed so i think for me is that to your point it's not that it's not didn't work you have to evolve right and make things more affordable the person living in southeast dc in a war can't afford an aura ring on an apple watch they can't afford to have you know like an ipad so i think for me the goal for all of us is how do we give what people need on the on the level of like who are facing disparities what we have to what we have as our everyday tools to manage our health.
1: That's a great yeah. reminder. Yeah. So Brian, I'd love to so, get your so thoughts many, as well.
0: So many points on that. So so the, going back to, to Joan's original comment too, just building on that, the, there is a really uh, excellent framework from the Digital Medicine Society, DIME, where it goes through the idea of sensor level verification, analytical validation, and clinical validation. And exactly as Joan was saying, is like we are at this point now where we are very comfortable with the sensor quality. They've done a good job. They've they've had that verification process go through, you know, a lot of rigor over the years. The analytical validation, can we actually, you know, extract the the right uh, insights from these devices? And then finally we're in that stage and I'm at kind of that intersection of the clinical validation pieces. Can we get this into clinical trial development and can we use it alongside other, you know, classic scales for clinical outcome assessments, and can we really understand more about the patient? And again, as, as, as Mayma and everyone is saying, like, moving away from that trial design where patients have to go somewhere and 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 travel, it, it's they can have this on their wrist. So, what I'm really excited about too is is again just building on all the conversations is the multimodal integration of all of these things. So. We're not just looking at one aspect of cognition, we're looking at multiple aspects of cognition. We're not just looking at heart rate, but we're looking at breathing, we're looking at respiration. You, you can start to build a whole profile of an individual, a whole like kind of persona, a whole daily activity you know assessment based on all of these different sensors. And that is really how we should be thinking about disease states.
1: So yeah. I'm going to stay with you on this, and I'd love to know a little bit about where is Janssen J and J on this journey right now in terms of using these new types of data to get smarter yeah. and to exactly. advance yeah. your trials.
0: So, so it's so exciting. So right now in Alzheimer's disease, we're thinking really thoughtfully about how can we identify the right patients for for the right trial, and there is this exciting time in in Alzheimer's and dementia research where. We now have some, you know, other companies, you know, are moving forward with really exciting therapies. They're, they're getting FDA approvals. Um, they're seeking out, you know, additional reimbursement. Uh, but but we, need, you know, we need to find patients. We really need to kind of develop the right tools to identify patients because we're going to get to this point where... Patients are gonna come to clinics and they're not gonna have those same kind of classic symptoms that we all believe, you know, in terms of having Alzheimer's. They're gonna look like anybody here, you know, on the panel, anybody in the audience, they're gonna be clinically silent. They're gonna be cognitively normal, but they're gonna have this underlying pathophysiology. And this is something where we need that subtle kind of continuous assessment to understand that behavior. So to really kind of identify patients that don't consider themselves patients yet. Well, that. thank
1: you for sharing. I know sometimes it's not as easy to share some of the technology yeah. and, and the secrets behind the curtain. So I appreciate you doing that. Maima, one of the things we talked about on our prep call was teaching people to advocate for themselves. And you started your story at the beginning about strongly advocating for yourself when they told you, no, you don't, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And you're like, no, there's something wrong. How do we get people to better advocate for themselves, particularly as it pertains to clinical trials?
2: I think people, or the burden is on the patient, unfortunately, right? We we want to be able to make things better for people, but people aren't often offered trials. Black women, when we had a a whole survey of black women over the past two years, and most of them said they were never offered a clinical trial, biomarker testing, and other things like that. So you can always say, like, who's going to fix the problem? But the solution lies within all of us. So I teach women to be their best advocate. Know your body, know your breast. touch your breast. What they look like, feel like, you know. Um, ask your doctor for a second opinion or a third opinion, or fire your doctor. You really are the CEO of your health. And so people generally think the doctor is again there's a hierarchy, right? Scientist, researcher, doctor, and then there's just 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 me. They have degrees, PhDs, MD, MDs, whatever. But I say that that doctor works for you. He took a Hippocratic oath to protect you mm-hmm. as a human being, and that's a, that's a job he has and an oath he made to protect people. So we have a program called the Angel Advocacy Program where we travel to communities that black women live, work, and play in. We educate them on the importance of breast cancer, everything, 101, understanding breast cancer, clinical trials, policy, advocacy. There's a whole module on clinical trials as well. How to go to the FDA, ODAC, how to be a part of a research project. And what's really powerful when you educate women, they come in like this, I don't know better, and they leave going, I got this. And now they're able to partner with, you know, a clinical, clinical Inc., yeah. yeah. you know, a Janssen, Merck, Lily, Amgen, as women who are leading and building a diverse workforce. So when I first began, people said, you can't do that. It's too much. You can't boil the ocean. We trained all these women last year to become breast health advocates. Now they're working in policy with pharma, with, um, with you know, insur- payers to make to make changes that we need to, be, to see happen, right? So I think that that's really important. And advocates are really trusted messengers, you can always hire an agency, that's fine too, but agencies come to Tiger Lily and say, can't talk to your patient. So really talking, having you guys as a partner, Real Chemistry, where we're working together in lockstep to reach women where they are, to build that trust, to say, before you ask them to give you something, ask them what their needs are. What are they feeling? What are their traumas? What has hurt them? Mm-hmm. What are the things as, a, as black women that made them not trust the healthcare system? and help them see that you're an ally for that person's life before you say, I want to recruit you for a trial. So we really work with a lot of partners in pharma to build community outreach plans, to build advocacy plans and to tell every woman that that power that you have is to use your voice is immeasurable. When I began Tiger Lily, I had no money. I had no nonprofit training. I had no business training. I had nothing. I had one employee that was my daughter (laughs) and we went to churches, hospitals, schools together, got volunteers. And again, now we're, you know, we've made an impact. So I'm telling every woman I meet, if I am possible, so are you. We help them manifest that possibility in this lifetime.
1: I love that. By the way, I think we're supposed to pretend that J&J is the only pharma company while we're on oh, this. Oh, sorry. Team. No, my bad. My yeah.
2: bad. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm totally teasing. You just cut it, it out. I'm yeah. totally yeah. teasing. J&J. It.
1: Brian worked at Merck before. <laughs> yeah. so he-, he has some experience across. I want to start with the non-obvious person on this one, but we talked about the FDA's guidelines and really mandating that we have more diversity in clinical trials. So Joan, I don't know if you or Brian want to take a first cut at this, but what impact has this had? Like, is it working? Are companies actually doing the right thing? Where are we on that journey?
3: I know that the work that we're doing using mobile technology and sensors and wearables, and using things like Facebook to like reach out to participants to enroll in clinical trials, um, has been proven to be very effective. Uh, we just recently did a study with uh, where we needed to enroll 10,000 participants in the study. Um, we were able to actually enroll, uh, do the full enrollment by screening 20,000 participants. No subjects ever came into a site and they were all recruited through social media or AdWords. That study actually was able to close three months early. I've done other studies like that where, um, but it's really about like what she said, is going to where people are. Yeah. Um, but social media is where a lot of people are and being able to target them demographically and encourage them to participate. Um, even just the marketing and branding that um, you do in pharmaceutical companies yep, exactly. in terms of showing diversity and the need of, need for diversity. But I'm culturally half Asian and I know that like part of the challenge that you see in some cultures is that there's less trust in Western medicine um, and that's something that you know we need to be able to share that your participation in a clinical trial will benefit you and everybody else that's in your family. So I think the technology of reaching out to participants is there, and the ability to collect that data is also now yeah. there through sensors and uh, through mobile devices.
0: No, it, it's a great, it's a great response. And I, again, I just build on that: is that with those guidelines that have come out, I think that some companies use those as the ceiling, and I think that at least I'm proud to say that we're thinking of that as the floor. You know, like you know, ten to fifteen percent of you know eth- ethnically diverse or geographic you know diversity. Uh, socioeconomic diversity—that's you know, we we can do better, and we shouldn't just be going to the minimum. So we really, again, just thinking about women in clinical trials, thinking about you know you know where Alzheimer's, where where you see these you know aspects of dementia and and other neurodegenerative diseases—it's it doesn't it doesn't discriminate from from a disease perspective, and we need more diversity in trials. And I'm I'm just glad to say that we're we're really working on it, and it's one of our missions.
1: I'm happy to hear that. We're gonna mix it up a little bit, we're gonna play a little uh, true or false, not truth or dare, but I have some questions. Some are intentionally made true, some are intentionally made false, but this is inspired by some of the, the prep that Joan and her team gave to us. So, the first question is, if you design technology well, people will use it. Is this true or false?
2: False.
1: False. Okay, false. why is it false?
3: Your motivation, just like in a video game, has to have some sort of a reward element to it. So um, the technology isn't what facilitates your use; it's yeah. what is the reward that you're you're going to experience individually, or that you ex- you see altruistically broadly.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Great. Yeah. You get some free popcorn at the end yeah. of the session. I'm New excited. <laughs> yeah. <thank you. laughs> okay. Second weird. one. More more <laughs> human factors and usability work needs to be done before trials, not just anecdotal focus group work. True or false? True, True.
2: but also co-creating with patients.
1: Yes, you touched on that one, so that was premonition. Did you have something else to add?
3: My graduate work is in human-computer interaction and I'm not seeing enough real human factors work being done in this space for not just usability, but understanding disease burden and like trying to understand what we need to do to target therapies to improve people's quality of life. So that human factors piece in this industry is far less than I've seen in other industries I've worked in, like the auto industry or aerospace.
0: Patients need to be there, have a seat at the table. The caregivers need a seat at the table. The way we think about technology, you know, like we think about you know Apple watches, as as we were talking, we're all wearing an Apple watch. You know, the idea here is, how does a patient with Parkinson's get that Apple watch on in the morning? You know, are we thinking about you know what kind of band is it going to be? How many notches should it be? Velcro? You know, you know, does their care partner have to help them with it? All of these aspects need to be at the beginning because if they're not going to put it on we're not getting the data.
1: Next one is, all clinical trial tech and apps are made just by and for the folks in Silicon Valley or younger people. True or false? False. OK. That's- I agree. False. <laughs> I mean, I think we probably overskew, and there is a lot of unconscious bias in some of the technology design that still happens. But obviously, we are making strides, and it is not just the tech pros. Yeah who are using or designing these kinds of things. Yeah. I,
2: I think people that also that who are facing disparities, who are living in communities that are underserved, we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, their first needs survival, food, water, house, air. kids, yep. air. Yep. Healthcare often is put on the, on the back burner. So I think when you from think from that perspective, we're thinking that they want to be healthy, but they're just, they're just not prioritizing it. They're prioritizing their kids being fed, their beds being warm, them having their homework done, having a parent that's present. Do I choose my health care over my kid's food and their life and their general well-being? So I think that when you co-create with patients, it's really important that you understand where they're coming from. So when I had my daughter, I was a young single mom. I did not want to have certain things for her, but I couldn't afford them. And as I grew in my life, I could afford more and more and more, but the priority was not, you know, these apps and rings and these things. It was more like getting her food, to school, getting her education. So really I think to me, co-creation is not just like we have a plan, come get black people's insight and then go home, but where are you living? Where is your mindset? What's your generational background? What are your struggles? And so each community is different that's black, like New Orleans versus Texas or DC, different, like different people, right? So really going where they are and creating solutions with people where they are, but adding in the emotional, because technology is great, but technology is also based on emotion, right? Yeah. And what people believe about the technology tools. So really asking people like, what is it you need, and building all these tools around them. Like to your point, when you have Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever, how can you put the watch on? Do you forget to even look at the watch okay. or the ring or charge it? So like, those things are important as well.
1: That's great context. Thank you for adding that. So data from devices like the Apple Watch and other wearables are waning in usage and utility. Uh, won't help us broaden clinical trials. I think. We probably know that's patently false. We sort of dispelled some of that up front, but why is that false, John?
3: Um, well, it's patently false that there are more and more people that are using sensors and wearables, younger people, older people. Um, one of the things I think is gonna have a dramatic impact on sensors and wearables is um, that Apple apparently is going to be able to come out with a glucometer that doesn't require um, you put being it's just going to use the PPG sensor on here. I've seen this research before. it will work. and with that alone it's going to totally disrupt what people use for monitoring um, glucose and we'll see a tremendous increase in the use of Apple watches or other companies that are able to use essentially light for being able to detect your, your um, glucose levels. So I think they're going to become more they're going to become more conditions that people will just buy it for their own. Um, medical use.
0: Well, it, it's just another—it's another data stream that we don't have good access to. So it's not something I would, you know, immediately think of it deploying into a Alzheimer's or Parkinson's trial. But if I had that data stream, then that becomes some new insight. You know, is—is is there caloric intake? Is the glucose changing over the day? Does that actually change behavior? You know, can we monitor that in a way that's you know, continuous and objective and, you know, would that lead to new insights? So, you know, it's really exciting.
1: So I want to do a big picture question and it's sort of like future looking. We've talked probably a lot about the current trends and things that we're excited about. So, but I do want to dig into what are the next real big breakthroughs in clinical trials, particularly as it pertains to data and process, although we can think bigger than that. So I'm going to actually let each one of you answer. I'm going to start with you, Brian, and let's try to pick one thing each.
0: The one, the one thing is just that multimodal integration, thinking about the whole patient, thinking about all aspects of, of behavior. Uh, that, that I think is what I'm most excited about. That's the, big, that's the big next trend. There are a lot of companies and a lot of efforts focused on one domain. It's either speech or it's cognition or it's movement, but all aspects need to come together in a harmonized you know, approach so that we can understand more about the patient. John?
3: That's what I do. I'm about sensor fusion. Um, so did Brian
1: steal your thunder? Yeah, yeah. no, no, no,
3: no, no. That's, He's why, why, we that's why we work together. Yeah. Um, AI and machine learning is gonna have a tremendous impact on all these data streams that are coming together and how they're going to be um, become meaningful information and not just
2: data. And Mema? I don't know if it's really our breakthrough. I think it's more going to what's really simple sometimes. I think tech has its value, but there's also the grassroots value. We trained um, 250 patients to go on the the ground and disperse disperse clinical trial content to do outreach. And there were three patients alone who had over 160 events that educated on clinical trials, health equity, and so forth. So I think that there must be a duality of what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Tech has its place, but nothing can replace a human being that you trust, Mm -hmm. that you Mm -hmm. know has your back, that you know has got you. And so when people were asking the when the advocates ask the patients, do you trust in trial? Well, they mentioned Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, and the Hopkins, you know, people that were kidnapped and never came back home. And these women were able to help convert these patients into ones who are trusting because they trust who they live, work, play, and pray with. So as you have these wearables that I love, they're important. Technology is important, but I think we cannot forget the human quotient, which is actually as most important. So I think for me, it's like you have to have all these things but it comes back to patient adherence. Who's gonna oh, use yeah, it? Yeah. Will they stick to it? And then will they tell, tell their friends and family about what well, this is really awesome, right? So that's what we wanna do is to marry tech with tech and science with real world people, right?
1: I love it. I told you yeah. you'd be our Jiminy Cricket on I'm this, show. I'm Jiminy,
2: right? but I'm not green though. <laughs> you're I wear, not green. I'll wear green next time. <laughs> you're the, you're, you know how no,
1: they've re- rebooted every Disney movie or whatever, you're the pink female version of yeah, Jiminy
2: Cricket. Yeah, I'm the brown so, one, yeah. Yes. <laughs>
1: Um, so this is the fun section here, not that talking oh, about God. clinical trials and data isn't fun. No, this is good. You you already know what the questions are. So uh, I like to ask my guests sort of icebreaker questions. I think it's fun for you as you're coming up and getting to know them, right? So the three questions are this, and we're looking for rapid-fire answers. So first concert, which food were or are you looking most forward to in Austin? And then this is the tricky one, but it's that movie. And, you know, the problem is we watch everything streaming now, so it's less of an issue, but... As the old dude that used to do this, and now when I'm at a hotel and you're flipping through channels because you don't have your Netflix or your Hulu, it's that one movie that's halfway through. You have to sit through the commercials. You probably own the movie at home, (laughs) yet you stop and you watch it for the rest of the way because you're like, I just love this movie so much. So uh, first concert, the food, and then the movie. Brian, we'll go with the
0: first. Uh, First concert, Incubus. Nice. So good. I like it. Incubus 311. It was incredible. Uh, Food breakfast tacos nice I got breakfast tacos I think every morning so far except today so yeah well done and uh I think we were talking about the yeah like the matrix you know matrix or just you know any but the original not like the the, the, the the two and three exactly yeah the reboot because I think they did a reboot the first the first original matrix was was incredible
1: and I'll watch that anytime yeah awesome Joan how about you
3: um, I'm older, so the Little River Band was the first concert that nice. I actually saw, and about um, uh, food next barbecue. I have to have some Texas barbecue, and then third, I watch a lot of movies, so it's kind of. But um, El Mariachi is one that, for some reason, if I see that, I'm gonna stop and watch it.
1: And then Mema.
2: Um, so move so first concerts concert, concerts Maroon concert. Five Adam Levine is just oh, nice. like you know I just he just like does it for me until the recent <laughs> yeah. scandals yeah he was my ex-husband so i divorced him too so so yeah adam levine and then um uh the food the m- you're movie. most
1: looking forward to and i know you've been to austin at least a couple i of like
2: times. everything here but i found these really went to this like ratchet little bar last night but it was so epic it was like they had these like really spicy tacos fish tacos and nice bean dip it was so much fun they had like kids running around dancing on tables i'm like. I love this place we're gonna go back and um, but I'm really like a mostly raw vegan so I just but I cheat sometimes Um, I like martinis too and red wine so anyway back to the point so um the movie I love City of Angels so much and I love Meet Joe Black. I'm more romantic at heart, you know. So well, I
1: like that you. I mean, I think all of Matrix may be a little more mainstream, but I like that you picked a little bit off the beaten path, you know. And even yeah. Matrix, which is on my top five list so, of all time, mine too. so Yeah, awesome. Any parting thoughts? And there's no obligation, but I want to make sure that no one goes and says, oh, there was that one thing I wanted to get there before we wrap up."
2: I just want to say, as a patient, I'm very blessed to be here on these kind of platforms. I think before we would be fighting to be able to have our voices heard. And um, with the murder of George Floyd, it was so painful to watch. But I think people saw that we had so much work to do, right? And we have to have these uncomfortable conversations about things that are still happening in our day and age. So we have to be honest about where we came from, where we're going, and be able to have you know, vulnerable talks about, I mean, the technology is great, all that we're talking about is great, but there are people who are, in the inter- who are in the center of all of this. And so being able to have those conversations and say, to, to again, to your point, here's the goal, but that's the bo- bottom. We have yeah. to get to here in a certain period of time. As we fought to get all these vaccines to the market in less than 18 months, how do we fight to ensure that we can get people to have equitable outcomes in the next 18 months or two, three years, and not in 10 years? I don't want to have my daughter have her children and we're having the same conversation again here in five ten years so we have to make you know commitments to smart goals that are specific measurable time bound actionable and 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 that we commit to not as we're going to try to get there but we have to get there because this is our kids future legacy and their birthright to have
1: equitable health outcomes Yep. Mic drop moment. Can right I drop there. this thing? Thank you, yeah. yes. Okay. They probably would <laughs> frown upon that. but So yeah, our, our technician says no dropping mic. So I want to start wonderful. by, A, thanking you all for being such a great audience. I want to thank our guests. So Brian Hansen of Janssen J&J, Joan Severson of Clinical Inc., Mae Carmo of Tiger Lily Foundation. And with that, thank you all, a round of applause. Thank
2: you all so much. Thank you all so much. Thank you.
0: Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts we post a new episode every thursday visit realchemistry.com for more info